0: This is Wayne Jernell, Editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy.
1: You're listening to Visions of Education,
0: a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K through twelve and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. How are you doing today, Dan? Doing pretty good. It's grading season, so you know it's fun to read students' final projects because it's always I always try to make projects that are a nice culmination of the work that they do all semester and brings it together but it's also a lot, <laughs> there's a lot to look at.
1: No, I hear you. You know, this time there's another big thing that a lot of people talk about and they probably get confused, hopefully not like your projects, Cinco de Mayo.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: There's that big confusion as to
0: what it is. Well, I wish there was more confusion because I think a lot of people don't even think about where the you know traditions come from and what traditions they're linked to. And what it means for people, because I think it's just become an excuse for people to, you know, drink. It it just doesn't seem like well-connected by a lot of people in kind of mainstream culture. I don't hear people talking about the history surrounding it. Do you?
1: No, no. There's either the confusion that it's it's Mexican Independence Day or it's just associated, yeah, with like having a taco bowl, I guess. Which does seem kind of problematic. Mm. And I feel like as Americans, we don't do – Mexican history or Mexican American history for that matter well
0: Do you feel that way? Oh, absolutely. I remember feeling very unprepared to teach Mexican American history in my classes and I was kind of aware of it I just feel like I didn't have enough exposure in first thing my own k-12 education Obviously the curriculum is very Eurocentric But then even in my teacher prep I, I you know, I was able to read some work by Gloria Anseldua, who talks about the borderlands and kind of a lot of the identity issues surrounding the, you know, southern part of the United States and Mexican-American cultures and history. But I didn't feel totally prepared. And it comes up with the Mexican-American you know American War, but it's obviously a very Eurocentric telling in many of the textbooks. And so I felt like I've, I still have a lot of, you know, I need to learn about. One particular area was I, I always thought about was I remember a couple of years ago, my students were we were talking about Brown versus Board of Education. And it's always told as a black, white story. And one of my students asked about, you know, Hispanic students, like what was, how, how was segregation affect them in the different schools? And, and I remember just being like, wow, I have a lot to learn. And there is a very good documentary on a U.S. Supreme Court case that took place out of Driscoll, Texas, where Mexican American students were being asked to repeat grades, basically just because of their race. And so that case went all the way to Supreme Court. And there's an excellent documentary. I highly recommend it called Stolen Education. But that doesn't make our way into the history books very much.
1: Yeah. Now, I don't teach U.S. too, which is where that would have that would have been. But I feel like I remember learning about like some of the big cases with civil rights. Specifically, we're talking about African-American. But with the exception of Cesar Chavez, I'm not sure if many other Mexican-Americans made it into my my education.
0: So I think this all speaks to, you know, how Mexican-American students experience school because if your history is not represented, we know that's one of the the first problems you could have. Right.
1: right, Yeah. So I took a class on, on the cultural responsive classroom and that's one of the big takeaways that I walked away with. If you can't see yourself in history, then there's going to be a disconnect between you and history period. And you're not going to know and other people aren't going to know where you or where people like you belong, which sounds like it should be fixed. It sounds like there should be some sort of, I don't know, focus on making sure that people are represented in American history, at least in a in a better way than it is when we were growing up.
0: Well, we can learn a lot more today and get that conversation started because we are bringing in an expert on the topic. And so we would like to welcome in Maribel Santiago to the podcast. Welcome.
2: Hi, good afternoon. How are you guys doing?
0: We're great. Doing great. How are you doing, Maribel?
2: I am keeping warm in very cold Michigan.
1: You're in Michigan, right? Yes. That's good. I'm
2: at Michigan State, and it's May, and it's sunny outside, but it's very deceiving. The sun is very deceiving because it looks warm, but it is incredibly cold.
1: Oh, no. Interesting. That must be a Michigan thing. I feel yeah, like everything yeah. is just colder there.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, my gosh. It's really warm here I'm in Texas. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, The sun is not deceiving us here.
1: (laughs) The deceitful sun. Maribel, do you mind telling us a little bit more about who you are, like your background, or really anything you'd like to tell us about who is Maribel Santiago?
2: Yeah, so, well, um, I guess the basics. I'm an assistant professor here in the College of Education. I also have affiliated status with the History Department and the Chicano Latino, Latino Studies Program. But I made my way here through teaching. I was a former high school teacher in Los Angeles, in the neighborhood of Watts specifically. And so I've been doing this work about curricular inclusion of Latinx peoples pretty much since I was a high school student.
1: Since you were a student?
2: Since I was a student, yeah. I um, think it was my senior year in high school or my junior year in high school, I started a petition to bring a Latino, Latino studies class to our high school. Wow. Which was at that point 50% Latino, Latina. Yeah.
1: That's kind of amazing. Where you see some of the issues that we were talking about earlier, it's just like the, the lack of inclusion in. Uh, oh, dealing...
2: absolutely. I mean, I hated history as a K 12 student because of the, the reasons you listed, right? I didn't see myself reflected in history. It didn't seem interesting. It was very much fact based.
1: Right. Uh,
2: now we talk about historical inquiry, at least. In our field, we talk a lot about historical inquiry. And so my experience as a student was drastically different from my experience as a teacher. And I think be- I actively try to include the history of my students, specifically the community-based history, because it was a direct reflection of I never saw myself in the curriculum, ever.
0: How did they respond to your petition and efforts? Is there Was there any response in your so high school? It so
2: uneventful. You know, as someone who, like... So I have to say I hated history. I hated history, the course that was taught to me in K through twelve, but my history classes were always supplemented at home by my brother, my father in particular, who who taught me about the history of Mexico, my dad taught me about the history of Mexico, and my brother who understood I wouldn't get to see anything remotely political or anything related to Chicano Chicanas. And so, you know, we would go to library and get all the books that I wish I had as a student. And so so as someone who grew up watching the Chicano series documentary around the the Los Angeles high school blowouts, which wanted for Mexican American history courses amongst many other things, you know, who grew up with a, around the history of activism, I thought that this was gonna be some really crazy thing that would happen and that was the most uneventful. <laughs> thing I ever did. I, I developed a, a petition. I, I found a teacher who was willing to do it on, in their auxiliary, so they would just give up their their free time and um, get paid for it. We had a list of over 40 students, so we definitely had enough students who were interested in it. It was an elective course, and last I heard, they were still teaching it, so that's kind of interesting. Well, that's amazing.
0: I mean, that's you, you made a real change, and it's, it's awesome that a teacher was was able to step up and, you know, help with the development of the course. But it just goes to speak how not all education is educational. You know, it seems like the history that you were taught really, I just, in my mind, I was just thinking of, you know, the transmission kind of banking model that, that Paulo Freire talks about that often is reflected in schools and how you advocated for your own empowering education. And that's really cool.
1: It was like your radioactive spider bite. (laughs) <laughs> Except it wasn't, you know, as exciting in the end. But I mean, obviously, it, it grew to be, you know, you today having a, a much different trajectory, at least than it seemed like you were originally going to have. Since you hated history, and now you are affiliated with the history department in Michigan.
2: Well, I ended up majoring in history. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I majored in Chicana Chicano studies because that was the one thing I knew going into undergrad, and from there I realized, oh, I needed a second major, and history made sense. But then I ended up taking history core. All the history I learned. All the history I never got to learn as a high school or K-12 student, right? So I took so, all the courses that aligned with FM, Asian M, Native M, And so it really gave me a very different understanding of what history could be.
0: And Maribel, we're going to talk in just a moment about your article that was published in Theory and Research in Education, which, congratulations, it's a, a great to be published in that journal. It's a very difficult journal to get published in. But before we jump into your, this specific study, what are some of the bigger issues in teaching Mexican-American, Chicano, Latino, Latino history in, in schools? What, what are some of the big issues in the field we need to be thinking about?
2: Well, one is that we don't think about it, right? I think that's the major issue. Like I've been talking, having conversations with colleagues in Los Angeles, LA recently adopted an ethnic studies requirement for their high school students and the problem is we have teachers who are interested but we don't have any researchers education researchers who who spent time looking at how should we be teaching ethnic studies we have very few and we we just researchers have not caught up to the demand and yet at the same time we have a lot of historians a lot of chicano chicano studies scholars who have been doing this work for decades but there is this process of translation that is missing right how do you get history educators to take the history content and make it accessible for our teachers because teachers are very busy do not have the luxury to sit down and read books all the time we were talking about grading earlier right and just i think as a high school teacher I, I barely had enough time to do in-depth research i relied on professional development from non-district resources to be able to learn more and develop my craft and that's where that kind of gap exists there's a demand the content is there, but we need to be able to be better about getting that to our educators who want to be able to teach this.
0: Well, so let's let's jump into one of your most recent studies that you've done. So your your study that was published in Theory and Research in Social Education is titled "Erasing Differences for the Sake of Inclusion: How Mexican Mexican American Students Construct Historical Narratives." Can you tell us a little bit about this study and and what you found?
2: So, I actually ended up observing a high school teacher who wanted to be more inclusive, right? This was the ideal scenario. A Latinx teacher in a predominantly Latinx school who wanted to include these, this history for his students. And I sit there and watch him teach the Mendez case. And as someone who's familiar with the case, realized that something wasn't right in terms of the narrative that he was presenting. And so, what I ended up finding from, from his observations and the analysis of the curriculum that he uses, and based off the student interviews is that we've kind of talked about Mexican-American contributions as if they were part of the black civil rights movement. So we don't talk about a Mexican-American civil rights movement or Mexican-American history. It's, they're just simply subsumed under the black civil rights narrative. And this is incredibly problematic because it essentially erases all of the aspects of Mexican-American experiences that are unique to them, right? So in the Mendez case in particular, it's pretty much taught as if if it were Brown v. Board, but with Mexican-American protagonists. So you have, it's 1946, California, Mexican-American children, the Mendez children are denied access to their local school. The parents file a lawsuit and they eventually end Mexican-American school segregation. So it has all the basic elements that makes it look like Brown v. Board. But in order for it to look like it, what people end up erasing is one, well, the Mendez children and the other plaintiffs end up winning because Mexican Americans are considered legally white. So they gain access to white schools because you cannot segregate white children from other white children. Uh It it ends up upholding, because they don't end racial segregation, it ends up upholding segregation against Native Americans and Asian Americans that were actually on the books in California legislation. So it doesn't end racial segregation. And what the courts conclude is that if Mexican American children cannot speak English, then they continue to be segregated. So language ends up becoming the proxy for racial and ethnic discrimination.
0: Which if I remember right, that's the same thing that happened in the Driscoll case later in Texas, because they used that and it, it didn't even matter how well the students spoke English either. Like it's it, so a red language clearly was, that's what they used as kind of an impetus, but it wasn't even used consistently that way, which is right. obviously what happens under um, a lot of forms of segregation.
2: Correct. The students aren't tested. A lot of times Spanish surname was another way to se- segregate Mexican-American children. And so Mendes does this in the 1940s, California but this other white legal strategy, right? Trying to claim whiteness to gain access to white schools gets replicated in Arizona, Colorado, and Texas, right? Because Mexican-Americans figured out there's a way to get access to better education. And it wasn't that they were trying to deny that they were Mexican-Americans. They weren't turning their back on who they were. It was really about, there's a loophole. Let's take advantage of the loophole. And so that whole complex history of Mexican-American identity, the social construction of whiteness, the, ra- the social construction of racial categories, period, the way that language and race and ethnicity are intersected gets completely erased from how we end up teaching mandates in classes.
0: What grade level were you looking at? What class were you in? And what were some of the things that you saw in the class?
2: So I observed an 11th grade U.S. history classroom. I observed two, but for the study, I actually only ended up focusing on one. And, you know, it was taught right before Brown v. Board and it was taught right before Little Rock Night because chronologically it made sense. But it, it didn't really lead itself to understanding the real experiences of Mexican-Americans and the curriculum. And, you know, you really can't blame the teacher for this. Right. The curriculum said it, that it was this way. If you do an online search for curricular materials on Mendez, you will get the same story. The only way you actually know that language was later used as a proxy for racial segregation is if you pick up a book written by a historian or an article written written by a legal scholar. And no educator is reading that, you know, and so um, it just makes it I think that's part of what we're talking about earlier What's part of the problem. It's translating that, translating the research that people are doing and making it accessible to teachers. We know
1: that there's clearly some issues with the way that these curriculums are putting it in place. What is a better way to frame this or or what are some good strategies in bringing Mendez to your or you know, to people's listening to their classrooms?
2: What I've done is taken resources that already exist and making them, pairing them in ways that highlights the historical and the racial and ethnic nuance of the Mendez case. And one of the things that I lay out really quickly is we need to begin with understanding what the racial and ethnic categories that existed in the 1940s California, right? Because that's kind of the premise, right? So let's talk about, so when I actually, when I did, I developed a curricular intervention for students in this other study, and that's where they begin. There were four racial ethnic categories in 1940s United States, black, Asian, Native American, and white. Where do Mexican Americans fit? And very quickly students understand, well, they don't, right? And so students will give you varying answers. They'll say black because we experience the same form of discrimination. And some will actually say Native American because we're both actually indigenous, right? But very beginning from that and tying it to students' personal experiences kind of lays the groundwork for understanding why white privilege exists and why Mexican Americans would claim white privilege. Because that's very important to understand. They, Mendez family wasn't trying to claim whiteness. It was the attorney who developed this legal strategy because it was a loophole, right? So that kind of lays the foundation for students. And then we have a series of historical, historical inquiry interventions, which one examines. They're all based on the same historical question. Does the Mendez case end Mexican American segregation in California? And they see the, the judge's decision. Text from Mark Brilliance, The Color of America Has Changed, which has been modified for high school students. And they compare the documents and figure out themselves, does it or doesn't it, right? And they they cite facts as to why they believe it doesn't. And then the follow-up, there's layering it to to it. And so the follow-up historical inquiry activity explores the issue of language. And so they, again, read a different judge's decision Um, and they read newspaper clippings to understand that language was later used as a proxy for racial and ethnic segregation. And part of that also includes an activity where I ask students, what are the similarities and the differences between Brown and Mendez? Because this is what this is what they're thinking in the back of their head, right? Oh, this is kind of like Brown. Right. But it's kind of not it's kind of not, and so it's kind of the elephant in the room if you don't actually explicitly ask it and then they kind of explain why it's not and some of them they say there's still strong similarities, but really, the it doesn't really matter if the students say yes, it's like Brown v. Board or yes, it ended segregation. It's really about the nuance, right? If they can really understand that Mexican Americans claimed legal whiteness, that language is a proxy for racial segregation, that's really the understanding that you want students to walk away with, because it really highlights the experiences of Mexican Americans. I mean, at the end, scholars debate whether or not it ended segregation for Mexican Americans and that's Ooh, a debate fun. that students that's a debate that students can have as well and that's not the takeaway it's not about learning yes or no but it's about understanding the historical context and the racial context that leads to these events to happen and the repercussions right how it ends up then coming replicated in other states because it was let's be honest an effective legal strategy
1: So number 1 I love learning in layers uh, like wearing layers I feel that it's the most effective way to to learn uh, and That way you can peel them back, and you know eventually you get to that core understanding, or a, you know like a, a t-shirt. So either way, I enjoy layers. Uh, secondly, Ex-
0: excellent metaphor, Michael. <laughs> I, it was,
1: I didn't know where it, it was ending, but it, was it does something. go
0: back to the temperature in uh, Michigan, which is relevant. So this is tying together.
1: <laughs> See this all? It all works out. This is how we work here. Secondly, is this all a part of your? This is a part of another study that you're, or another study that you're doing right now, right?
2: Yeah, the study's completed. I'm trying to publish this in the journal right now, but if others want to access more information, I did write a blog for the Journal of Teacher Education. They have this thing called JTE, and on there I wrote a blog on how to use the Mendez case for pre-service teachers. So it kind of explains three or four different ways they could include it in their classrooms. And again, since you like layering, um, I, I want- right, that this is kind of a natural starting point for discussing um, how other people of color have also been segregated. I think when I first taught this to students, the first question they had, wait a minute. First of all, they're surprised. Mexican Americans were segregated? We hadn't even thought about that. And then they're like, wait a minute, if Mexican Americans were segregated, does that mean that there were other people of color who were segregated? Does that mean that Japanese and Chinese Americans were also segregated? Right. So it leads to these other questions. And so it really is a nice uh, launching pad to be able to explore these topics.
0: To me, uh, Maribel and I just amending teaching a gender and education course, and I've been grading final projects, which have been incredible this morning. So the, the term is on my mind, but it just reminds me of looking at history from an intersectional perspective where we're trying to look at from as many viewpoints. And and part of, I think, the intersectional question is who's included and who's not, whose stories are included and who's not, because we can we can focus on certain aspects and then forget, you know, other components of identity. For example, you know, Mexican-American women may have even had different experiences than Mexican-American men. And those are just good questions to ask along the way. And so. Yeah, I really appreciate this because the Mendez case seems like it could serve as a larger learning example for pre-service teachers to ask that question throughout their curriculum.
2: And so there's other parts of the Mendez case. I'm only talking about race, ethnicity, and language, but there's other parts of the Mendez case. Part of the reason I love it so much is an example of a historical event that really allows for in-depth conversations about multiple things that occur at the same time. So in order for the family to be able to effectively launch this lawsuit, the father ends up, you know, driving around with the attorney, trying to pull in people who want to join the lawsuit. And so the mother, Felicitas, ends up running their farm in 1946, California. Like, that's a big thing to think about a, a, a woman to do at that time, right? She's running a couple acres all on her own, Right. And she's hiring people to help her be able to work on the farm, including Mexicanos through the Bracero program, right? So then there's this additional layer of being able to understand how the Bracero program comes to be part of California legislation and be able to produce, you know, the the foods that we need in California. And so there's multiple layers to this. And also Felicitas is actually Puerto Rican. So the Mendez children are actually half Puerto Rican, half Mexican-American, and that doesn't get included in California curriculum at all because we're a, a state that's predominantly Mexican-American. That's only stuff that gets highlighted on the East Coast, like in New York, where all of a sudden the Mendez children and Felicitas is highlighted because of their half Puerto Rican ancestry, right? And so it's there's multiple ways in which we erase and highlight certain stories for a very specific purpose.
1: The same thing as being, oh my God, that's (laughs) crazy. But it's all about like reflection, you know, it's all about wanting to be reflected in the curriculum. And this seems to lend lend multiple lenses into that.
0: So, Maribel, um, as we're kind of starting to finish up, Kit, what advice do you have for teachers who want to, you know, do this work, who want to ensure that there's an inclusion of accurate and enriching, you know, Mexican American, Latino? You know culture and history in their curriculum. Where, where can they start? What advice would you have for them?
2: I think at a very basic, they need to be more have a greater understanding of what Mexican American, who Mexican Americans are. And you know, there's several YouTube videos that are available that talk about intersectionality, Mexican Latinx white privilege, why Mexican Americans are mestizos, why there's why Mexican Americans and Mexicanos are various different shades, right? Because it's a combination of black African slaves, European and indigenous ancestry, right? And so that's just a very, I think a very basic way to really expose yourself to the racial and ethnic nuance that exists in the Mexican American and Latinx community as a whole. And there's a lot of work now being done Not a lot. Let me take that back. Not a lot, but it's starting to gain momentum on writing about black Latinx communities. I do
1: have to ask this, and I should have asked earlier, what is Latinx?
2: It's uh, so usually the way to be inclusive of both genders is to say Latino, Latino. Right. But uh, it's it conforms to the gender binary. So Latinx incorporates non-gender conforming people.
1: So your class would you started was Latino Latina yeah. history. And so it today it might be if you were to create it, it might just at, be yes, Latinx. Correct. Okay. That makes sense. And I, I should have asked that earlier. I did have No, a no, question. no worries.
2: I, I forget sometimes. <laughs> um
1: I apologize for for you know No, your...
2: no, I don't know. Enough for, a, okay, you well, on a roll. There's a basic history stuff, right? And then I think it's really a reflection of you have to reflect constantly as a teacher. And I know Dan you brought you brought this up about who am i including and who am i excluding but also part of that questioning needs to be what am i te- like what represent what is what story am i representing am i representing a story that sounds very similar to another community just because i want students to understand it and am i doing that at the expense of them actually learning the complex history of a community right so it's about not just who's included, but how we're including them. And part of that is why are you, why are you including them? If you're just including people because you want to be able to check off the list, then you know this just sticking in the Mendez thing works for you. But if you really want to engage your students in better understanding their communities, we talked about this about seeing yourself in history. But you know it's really important that non-Latinos, non latinx communities learn about the history of Latinx communities. Because our classrooms are becoming increasingly more diverse. We have Latinx communities popping up in places that we don't usually associate with Latinx. Like we think California, Texas, New York, Florida, right? But we don't think Georgia, mm-hmm. South Carolina, or places where becoming are becoming increasingly Latinx in our schools, in our school representation. And so it's really important that it's not just about learning the history to be able to see their students reflected in it. But to have other people better understand the experiences of a Latinx community. I think you think about what's happened during our current presidency and everything that happened happened during the election, is there was a clear misunderstanding of who Land people were or and are, right? And not teaching about Land communities does no one any favors. If you if you are committed to not only understanding your students, but wanting to work in a society that really treats them with respect and embraces who they are as human beings, then you're going to have to do a little bit of work and read up on some of the history yourself.
0: I mean, to me, that's always meant it's not about just adding stuff to our current stories and narratives and textbooks. It's about redoing the whole story. Because once you see it through a different lens, it's not the same story. It's totally different, which is just I think part of the lesson from the Mendez case, right, is that it's not the same as Brown, and so we have to look at it from a totally different viewpoint. And all all of this, Maribel, just reminds me of again one of the purposes of social studies to me is to just ask those even the identity questions: Who are we? And it's it seems like a lot of teachers in classes don't address that for our you know Mexican American Latino X community, and so we've got to do a better job.
2: I agree. I agree.
1: Maribel Santiago, it's been a pleasure to have you on today.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. It was fun. It, it was. was fun.
0: Where can our listeners find you and your work online?
2: So I have a website, maribelsantiagophd.com, and that usually has the links to my most recent publications. There's a book about to come out at the end of the year entitled Making Controversial Issues Relevant for Elementary Social Studies, and that is... Uh, wow. There's a book chapter in there uh, where I read about the Mendez case and list the different resources teachers can use, resources that are readily available to them. So it doesn't require them to,
0: you know, do extensive searching.
1: That sounds like an amazing resource.
0: Yeah, that'll be great. Thank you. We'll definitely get that in the show notes. And again, just thank you so much for joining us today. We'll definitely continue the discussion online and maybe people will send you a few tweets.
2: Oh, yeah, they could tweet Profa Santiago. That's my Twitter handle. So I could ask, uh, I can answer their questions.
1: Perfect. And we'll have a link to all that and more. <laughs> so at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something exciting, creative, or you just want to chat with Dan or I, or, you know, I guess it's just me and Dan who are running the Visions <laughs> of Ed stuff. Just tweet us at Visions of Ed. And of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere you want us to be.
0: And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. It helps people find this. And
1: write us a five-star review. It's nice. Why not?
0: It helps people find the podcast. You listen. Yeah. You're listening now. Go ahead and take some time and do it. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.